Welcome to a very special breaking news episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Today, we have a For Fintech's Sake first. We are breaking international news with my guest today, Ron Oliveira, Revolut's US CEO. Revolut has actually been live in the U.S. for a year now, but they've been quiet. They launched right as COVID was taking over the world and the news cycle. Since then, the team has been hard at work building, heads down for the past year. And today, Revolut announced two monumental pieces of news, and I'm excited to share them with you here. First, Revolut has submitted a draft application with the FDIC and the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation to work towards obtaining a banking license in the U.S. Like I said, big news. The second piece is Revolut Business. It's one place to manage all things business, is launching in all 50 states today. Ron and I dig into both of those pieces of news, what to expect from Revolut in the U.S., and what the future holds for Revolut in the U.S. and across the world. Now, this episode is unofficially brought to you by Empire Startups. For fintech's sake, and Empire Startups have partnered on a number of initiatives in the past, and the way things shook out, I was lucky enough to get to have this conversation with Ron through an introduction from John Zanoff at Empire Startups. So, you don't forget the people that put you in the game, and I wanted to say thank you, John, and also stay in the loop on everything fintech at empirestartups.com. Also, John and I are putting out a conversation together later this week, so stay tuned for that. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ron Oliveira. Well, Ron, let's do this, my friend. So we're going to announce some big news here today, but before we get to that, I'm going to do what I generally do and bury the lead a little bit and kind of put that a little further down the road. So we'll get to two pieces of big news that Revolut and you're announcing today. But before that, let's start with you. Let's start with Ron and specifically kind of the background on Ron and how you got to Revolut. There's a lot of R's there, but we'll work through all of them. So tell me the Ron story. Like, where are you from? How'd you grow up? Kind of how do you get into the world of finance? Tell tell me about you. Tell me about me. My goodness. Yeah, it's always hardest to talk about yourself, right? Or some people do it really easily. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, a native Californian, um, more, more specifically Central Central Valley. If people know anything about California, there's, a, there, there's something beyond San Francisco, LA, and New York. I mean, and uh, the central coastline. Um, there's a big Central Valleys out there. Third generation farm family. Um, I graduated uh, from a small agribusiness college and was planning very much to be in the agribusiness world. Um, and, and I went to a, a job fair that we had and there was a lot of banks there. And I was uh, another one of those broke college kids. And uh, one of the banks there at that time, uh, no longer with us, Crocker Bank, that said, we'll give you an intern job. We'll pay you. And after nine months, if you do a decent job, we'll, we'll find a place for you. And I remember telling my, my roommate, I said, you know, I'm never going to be a banker. But man, this is a nice deal, um, and I could certainly learn something along the way. And then, and then I think the final thing that really kind of kept me kept me in banking or finance, at least not considering back to ag, ag, was we had a dairy, and my dad always my dad had told me, you know, he read a lot of journals and things, and he said, you know, Ron, he said, I just heard that if you take cows and you milk them from two times a day to three times a day, they give more milk, which turned out to be true. But Zach, the reality was I wasn't going to go back 
and work seven days a week, three times a day milking cows. So my parents definitely pushed me in the finance world. So that kind of got me got me into the into the finance side of life. I love it. I love it. So tell me, well, uh, number one, as a, you know, Missourian sitting in Kansas City, the ultimate cow town, I, you know, I have a certain understanding having grown up in the city. I only understand it in theory, but a lot of friends have gone from, you know, farming to banking in pretty short order. And it's a bizarre trajectory, but it's interesting how often it happens. It seems that people will, will run the opposite direction of having to do a lot of that work on the farm. And the boardrooms at banks are generally pretty nice with comfy chairs. So, you know, there's a, it's a nice landing spot. Yeah. Yeah. I started to find out that, uh, gee, you're going to work eight to five and you don't have to fight the elements. And, um, you know, it's, it wasn't a lot of hard work at that point in time. Banking's gotten a lot more challenging, but, um, in the early days, it was a pretty genteel job. Let's just, let's just put it that. So I, I went through the the chairs that most people do in my 20-year career. Um, like I said, started at, at Crocker Bank from there. I really moved between multinational banks of large-scale money center banks. I've worked at small community banks along the way. And about a year and a half ago, um, I met Vlad and Nikolai, who are the co-founders of Revolut. And they offered me an opportunity to basically launch Revolut in the U.S. Uh, and be that bridge, if you will, between the, the fintechs and let's call it traditional banking. And, and to me, that's an exciting place to be. I love it. So what what forged your interest in fintech? Because I imagine you met them and you had already been interested in this world, spending time thinking about it. What what pulled you from like the classical kind of community bank, mid-tier regional banking world, multinational banking even into this fintech thing that we all like to talk about today? Yeah, a, a couple of things. I think the, the first one was uh, the previous bank I had worked at we were a small, a smaller bank in Silicon Valley here in California, and we did a lot of financing of technology companies, not necessarily fintechs, but technology companies. Um, and it really gave me a chance to take a look at everything that was going on in that space, the good, the bad, the, the, the not so profitable and those that you know were pretty amazing. And it really piqued my interest. It, it really thought, I said, there's three things that are happening right now and or has happened is that. The technology is here today, Zach. The technology truly is here today from a mobile app perspective that you can get virtually all of your banking services and needs from. A decade ago, we talked about that, but but the technology wasn't there. It was a nice talk, but we couldn't walk the walk, if you will. And then the other side, the regulators. The regulators, until recently, were pretty reluctant to uh, to join and, and basically offer licenses to, to fintech companies if we could prove ourselves with them. So uh, they've come now to the point that before we were really small companies, too small to pay attention to. Now fintech, several of us, are too large to ignore. So regulators are there. I think technology is there. And then the final piece, the customer is there. And the, the customer is, you know, that Gen X, Y, and Z millennials for the most part, which are Revolut customers that are very comfortable with, with a mobile app and actually um, look for, want that, if you will. So those three pillars um, really brought me to, to where I am as far as where I think the opportunity is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, my, my favorite Steve Martin quote is, be so good they can't ignore you. 
right? Just be so overwhelmingly Steve Martin that they can't, they can't overlook you. And you all have done that, right? I mean, you haven't maybe been there through the whole trajectory, but from being founded in what, 2015 to raising almost a billion dollars, which like, you know, we talk about a lot of companies that are worth a billion dollars, but the company, you know, the, the numbers of groups that have been able to actually get to that fundraising mark is, it's not a, not a huge portion of uh, the economic society here. And then from there, actually moving over to the U.S., going in an international, having, what was it, a or 15 million users globally. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a growth trajectory in six years. So maybe before we get into all of how that happened and kind of what the future holds, because this is a U.S.-based podcast, and I think most listeners will know who Revolut is, but maybe we should just rewind a tiny bit. And how did Revolut get started? Kind of what was the founding thesis? And just kind of tell listeners a little bit more about the business so that they have a little bit of a, a stake in the ground before we get into some of these announcements. Yeah, Revolut, at their very core, you know, if you roll back that that long, illustrious career of five-year, you know, five-year company life, five-and-a-half-year company life, at, at its core was, was basically a travel card. Um, and what I mean by that is there was two really strong, compelling features. There was a, a great FX exchange feature. So you could move and, and think of this from a, a European, UK-centric company, so I should say that. And so with that idea... Going from country to country, you could, in essence, get get off the airplane, walk across a Starbucks, and it could flip you into a, a euro at, at a moment. It, it could put you into, you know, a, a Deutsche Mark. It can make anything instantaneous on that app for you at extremely good exchange rates. You could hold it on your app at the same time. You could hold multi currency. You could have three, four, five currencies on your in your what we call vaults, if you will. And at all at one time, you didn't you didn't need to stop at the ATM. You didn't need to have to pay absorbent fees. And when you get back on that plane and you headed you headed somewhere else, you could just flip the currency right back to your native currency or keep it if you wanted to speculate, I guess, um, on that. So that was really its core. And then from there, going fast forward, as it really took off, a lot of customers started to, to basically inquire, well, I would like this to be my primary bank. I like the idea of what, how slick this works, but you don't have a lot of the features that are table stakes at that point in time. So the journey was from that point forward to start to build out a product that not only offered all of the bank services, or call them financial services from the whole life journey, but also offer the sundry services, you know, offer that broker dealer trading crypto commodities so that you didn't really have to leave the app. So that's fast forward, get you, get you to today, if you will. Yeah, I don't think I, I didn't tell you this story when we talked previously, but I was sitting in London two years. I was going to say last year, but that was just, no way that happened. Two years ago, it was 2019. And I was sitting there with my cousin who's Parisian and one of his best friends who lives in London, but is also Parisian. And one of their other friends who's from Germany, but, but Germany by way of Paris and by way of London, right? As pretty much everyone over there is in some way, shape or form, right? Like right. that's that's the thing I think that a lot of Americans don't understand or maybe understand but don't know how prevalent it is is like just that multi-currency piece is a fascinating wedge into this market and the the like punchline of the story is that all three of them had revolute cards and you know being the fintech nerd that i am i was like number one you know had followed revolute i understand the multi-currency piece but what why this right you have competitors there's monzo there's all of these other you know brands in the market but it, the thing that kept being told to me over and over again is it's a one-stop shop. 
like, yeah, they had a Monzo cart too, deeper down in their wallet, but it was the one that they were using most consistently because they knew that it was the one app they could open to do all of these different things. So I think it's a, it's not something that we have in the US, which we're going to get to, but it's, you know, outside of you all, it's really, it's like you use this for your stock trading, you use this for your banking. So I think it's really interesting the way that you've been able to kind of aggregate everything, even through the whole life cycle. Like I didn't even know about, you know, Revolut, uh, I'm going to butcher the name of it, but Revolut Kids, what's, what's it called? Oh, juniors. Yes. Juniors. juniors. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, here that's, you know, the green light and a other app and another app that you cobble together to, to do all of these things. But I feel like most Americans are not aware of this one-stop shop that they could find online. And part of that is because you came to the U.S. right as COVID hit, right? So maybe maybe let's get to that. What is the last year held since you launched and what kind of went into that launch, I guess, even before that? Yeah, I, I love, we'll, we'll have our... Uh and first year anniversary on the 24th of March of this month from a year ago that we actually launched. So, um, yeah, I can, I'll give you that in a, in a capsule story, if you will. Um, but the idea being that, and why did we come to the U.S. and why did we come to other countries is that, you know, it became fairly prevalent pretty quickly that we wanted to step into countries that we weren't in already, that either we had a very large customer base, we already knew we, were, we had a large customer base, or two, that the potential was a very high upside, thus the U.S. Um, and why? Because we don't have, as you noted, a big customer base here as yet. Um, so this year, this year journey, as we were, as we were marching toward a year ago March, uh, no pun intended, I guess, is that we had a major marketing campaign on, on the way, p- performance marketing, referrals, you know, an, an entire suite that you would have when you launch in a country that Revolut does. But as we got closer and closer to the March, we, it became pretty clear, started, COVID started to rise. Um, and it was a really, a, it was at a decision point for us. You know, do we, do we launch at all? Or if we do, how do we do it? And we started to take a look at it and we came to the conclusion pretty quickly, launch was the right thing. Meaning what we offer, as you just described, is perfect for someone that's in a lockdown scenario that is basically sequestered at home and the product's free or near free. So what we had to offer still resonated very strongly, if not more in a COVID environment. What we didn't do was we just basically did a silent marketing or basically a quiet opening. We didn't advertise beyond a, beyond a few announced press announcements. We, we really didn't advertise at all. And we switched to taking every service and product that Revolut has worldwide in the app and passporting it to the U.S., refining it, customizing it for this marketplace. So that's what we did. We really, in the back shop, said, let's build this product so it's it's seamless for this U.S. marketplace. So when things do pick up, hopefully soon, that that it's there. So that's what we've really done for the last six or seven months, um, probably until October, November um, of last year, is make this product so that if you're a Revolut customer in the U.S. and you're in the U.K. or you're in Eastern Europe and you hold the Revolut app outside of the language that you see, and if there is a product or two that from a regulatory perspective you can't offer in that country, you're going to have the very same experience that you had anyplace else. That's that's a real our focus. And build out our team, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that at the end. One of the things that I'm most curious about with an expansion, like start in the UK, right? Went out through Europe and then coming to the US. 
I think the it like kind of based on that story before, right? You have all these people sitting around one table in London with a Revolut card, like the outside of what you mentioned, right? Like maybe there's a regulatory piece of buying a stock in Berlin versus buying a stock in London. And there's some nuances there, but when it comes to coming to the US, I think we as a society think that we're very different. I think as a society, we, we are, we perceive ourselves to have unique angles on the world and unique thoughts. And, you know, we, we think we're special, right? Like we'll just, we'll just say that. What was necessary, if anything, pre launch, post launch in the past six, eight months? to change what what about the app had to change were there was there anything were there kind of behavioral psychology pieces that were different in terms of how we think about money versus someone overseas anything there really interesting or kind of is a human a human and a dollar a dollar and a euro a euro <laughs> yeah i think what you said at the end is true we all we all know that right um, but there is this human element that you, that you start to play in there, right? So the app itself and what we're providing is, you know, beyond the, you know, the basic plumbing, as you were talking about, is somewhat different. The rest of it's the same. What, what you soon discover, though, is, is how the terminology is used differently. You know, whether you call it a, a current account, a current account in the UK is what you and I know as a checking account. That's your current money, right? So they, there is this terminology and how you present things that really make a difference and resonate with people to make sure they, they don't want to have to think about what things are. They want you to tell it to them in their language and their in their jargon and their country norms. And so that's a lot of times what's going on and what we had to do was go through everything of how you're presenting it and making sure that it resonates with whoever's looking at it in that particular country. And that's why Revolut does a lot to hire people within each country to that customization piece of it. Because your first introduction, I mean, when you download, well, anything, you know, whether you're on your first date or you're, you're downloading your app, your first impressions are huge. So if it looks really slick, that's great. But now it has to function. And the function, it lots of times it has to have the right terminology. So for us, it was mostly customizing that terminology, how we present it, and what you're used to looking at without having to think about it. Yeah, because we have a deep set of extremely interested fintech nerds listening to this right now. I'm curious, especially about how kind of the banking backbone of that works. Right. You've kind of the, the way that you're thinking about it right now, and we'll get to this in a second, but the way that the status quo functions is that you, you're working in the U.S. the way most kind of fintech upstarts do, right? Where you have a set of sponsor banks, more than one because of kind of your size scale and what you're trying to accomplish. But how did that plumbing come about? Maybe that was even kind of before you joined, but how, how did that happen? How long did that take? Like, what was the process to get a lot of that stood up? Yeah, the, the plumbing piece uh, in the, in a country like the U.S., you know, it's basically the same, but you have to start with how it's set up in the U.S. In the U.S., um, and, and no, this is not a negative to, to regulators or, or how we do things. It's just a reality. We're a very complex country when it comes to our financial plumbing. Um, almost every organization from uh, regulatory compliance, Fed, Federal Reserve, all of those were all spawned out of a crisis act. So over time, whether it was the Great Depression, whether it was the 80s, whether it was 2000 with, with the dot-com boom, all of these agencies, all of these things we have, have just been layered on top. So the U.S. has extremely, uh, compared to other countries, a very complex system set up. There's been no real kind of step back, holistically look at all of this because it could be streamlined. So to answer your question, so knowing that, then the thing here is 
Everyone has to get into the Federal Reserve System to be able to clear payments. That's the root of everything. So our plumbing goes through sponsor banks, as you just pointed out, where we have business relationships with. And there it flows to the Federal Reserve where the clearing checks take place. That's the core. And that's what you have to dig into. Now, we at Revolut are... um, We're a build company, not a buy company. And I say that as we literally build almost everything we have from a technology side. Because just think of our roots. We, you know, we're a we're a fintech, yes, but we're really heavy on technology that just happens to be in the finance space. So we do use third parties, yes. But for the most of all, if we can build it and it's certainly customer facing, we're gonna build that price. So we had to build the rails to get into the banking system, to get to the Federal Reserve. To, to basically process checks and we checks DDA current accounts. That's the that's the the core. And after that, everything sort of bolts onto that. That's a banking product. Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like building a moat, right? Like at the end of the day, we talk about technology companies, and I think fintech is one of the few verticals of su- sub technology verticals where you would even need to say that. Right. Like where you would even need to say we're a build first company. Right. Because this this idea of maybe you grab some open source in the early days and you figure out how to kind of, you know, eventually remove that, whatever. But this is a very buy or at least partner heavy world. And I think there's reasons for that at Upstart. There's reasons for that at a lot of different stages. But it sounds like the reason that you're going further in that direction and building everything is is the moat, the competitive advantage, the kind of customizability and ability to really meet the user where they live without having to go through, you know, some second, third party and request a professional service or something. Am I kind of thinking about that correctly? Yeah. I mean, think about it this way, too. Like I started the, this, your question out was that U.S. is so complex in what they much more complex than many other countries on its financial side that Revolut looks at it from here's the customer. Here's what we want to do. How do we get to the shortest distance? And the shortest distance is to build that platform Um, because there's a lot of platforms out there today, um, but most of them are legacy, older systems that use all that plumbing and infrastructure that causes all of these friction points. It takes three days to settle because you're going this way. Oh, it's over a certain dollar amount. We can only give you so much money for that point. Those simple things, they're there for old reasons. They're there because old architecture. And again, I always say, um, not not here to criticize. It's all everybody's approach to business. And if you look at some of the big, huge banking legacy systems out there, and I won't name them, but they've been around for 30 years, 25, 30 years. They've had a huge consolidation among them in the last decade. And what you see happening is a lot of those companies now, are they paid a lot they do a consolidation, and they're not necessarily in a rush to innovate a new system. They're not necessarily in a hurry to do that because that costs money. It degrades what they've already spent. Um, so it's a really a finance thing. Honestly, Zach, it's not that, that financial institutions don't want to help their customers. That, that, to, that's a misnomer. They, True. they all they all do. They all agree. Do. Um, but they turn around and most large finance institutions that are not startups, that are not fintechs, one of their shareholder primary goals is to pay a dividend. And so to pay a dividend, which is nice, stable dividend to your shareholder, that's who's buying your shares. Um, dividends are going to suffer 
when you take a look at having to build out a new platform to make a huge leap forward in technology and not abandon, but certainly shrink down what you use today. That's a lot of what's slowing down this conversion, allowing companies like us to, to just rush in basically and, and take market share. It's interesting to kind of watch the two boats like move next to each other, right? Like, and I think the classical version of this is I I work in banking as a service, right? So I I spent a lot of my time previous to this. I was at a community bank before I started working in banking as a service. So I, I see both sides of it. I see the, the build and partner with the bank. I see the, you know, the just buy everything and the bank comes with that. There's all these boats kind of rushing next to each other. And I think the thing that, I think the thing that we sometimes forget in the financial media, especially, is that this is not a, you know, two hour race. This is not a day long race. This is not a year long race. This is a a centuries long race in most cases when we're building these these financial companies like they, they're not going to be fly by night things. And inherently, there are moats that need to be built in order to have that be true over time. And there's also the amount of time you can spend building on something that's already been built, like you were just saying. So I think let's just get to the lead that I've been burying because I'm really excited to talk about it and I have some questions about it. But you all have applied for a bank charter. You announced next week that we're acting like is today when it's it's <laughs> releasing. Um, but tell, tell us about that, kind of how that decision came to be and even more so just kind of the, the nuances of it, who you applied with. Update me. Tell me everything. Yeah, this is like an evolution. And I'll, I'll answer that question in a minute because that's probably the most exciting one for me. But I will just to digress for just a moment. You talked about community banks and we're having work for a community bank. Community banks, let, let's not all put all banks together, um, just like any other industry, right? And so community banks, there is um, the they are the backbone of America when it comes to the financial blood that flows through it. So community banks are despite anybody's words, they're thriving, they're well-respected, they're in smaller smaller towns and locations, they're, their shareholders are local men and women that work in that community every day. So they they will do it and survive very well. Re- Revolut deals with you know the more regional, larger banks, and that's our competition. It is not the, the community bank side. But to your, to your point about a, a, getting a bank license, Revolut applying for a banking charter um, in the U.S. Is, a, is an evolution on that journey we want to have. We want to be a complete global financial app. And applying for a bank license removes just more of the friction I talked about. Um, but there's some really key things that are, are as important, if not more important. What does, what does a bank charter do for you? How Revolut looks at it. It gives you liquidity. It gives you stability. It validates. And in the long run, gives trust. So... That's one of the biggest challenges fintechs face in the world, but certainly in the U.S. is, you know, there's no brick and mortar. There's nothing out there. And so there's a trust factor that people struggle with, with, okay, who is this company? They're all online. Are they real? You know, people are looking for validation. So liquidity, what a bank charter does for you, banks can go directly to the Federal Reserve. We have ways to place deposits, receive deposits from our customers, because that's usually the quickest answer, right, Zach? People say, I want to be a bank because I want I want to have customer deposits and I want to offer credit. That's all true. That's very true. And you'll see that's many of the things that we're going to be looking at to enhance ourselves. But if you peel that back and get to it, it's really having that liquidity. So your customers know that you you always have a readily source of um, cash, if you will, from the either from your own deposits or from the Federal Reserve because you're part of that system. Um, stability. Banks are 
banks are, you just talked about it a little bit ago, they're around for, you know, 50, 100 years. So we're not going out tomorrow, going away tomorrow. And then the regulatory bodies, as much as we sometimes in banking say, ah, oh, darn, regulatory people, compliance, you know, they're necessary. They give us the overview, the oversight, and they keep us in check. So that also adds that that validation that we're doing things right and from a customer's perspective. So to me, that's what a banking license does. It does all of those things. And we can talk about the products in specific, but that liquidity, stability, validation, and ultimately the trust. That, and we're in for the long journey. It shows, right? Starting a starting a fintech or a bank in the UK with the way that the FCA has kind of grown to look at that world is a very different experience based on what I've heard from starting a bank in the US. And it's also not just it's not even that easy, right? Because my next question to you is, what kind of a charter did you apply for, right? A national state kind of how what was that process like? What were those conversations like? Uh, Whereas, you know, in the UK, it's just like you go to the FCA and you're kind of covered. So tell me about that. Tell me about that experience in the US. Yeah, yeah. My counterpart in the UK, uh, James, and the CEO there, because we we you, Revolut started or applied for a bank in Jan, uh, December, January of this year, uh, December last year, January of this year. Like you say, with the PRA and the FCA, it's just a pretty. It, I don't. Want, it's not straightforward, but it's relatively clear path. Um, here in the U.S., you've got. Do you want a state charter? No, well, maybe. Which state do you want to have it in? Do you, what kind of license do you want to have? Um, do you want to be with an OCC that you got a federal charter? Oh, do you want deposit insurance? That's that's the FDIC over here. If you have a holding company, well, that's another rig. That's a Federal Reserve. So um, what we did was we took a look at all of that, and, and we came to the idea that we want to be a state chartered bank in the state of California. You know, um, we want to be probably uh, one of the first fintechs. And I uh, this you can't quote me because I haven't validated it, but probably one, if not the first fintech to apply in the state of California for a banking license. I think that's true. I, I, Vero is the only other one that I can think of off the top of my head. And I think they applied in some state. It's like they're, they're, they're Yeah, they're national. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They so, yeah, I, I can't even think of anybody else in the U.S. that would have applied recently. Somebody's going to be mad at both of us probably eventually. Yeah. Somebody's going to hit somebody's going to send both of us an email, how dare you forget us both? You know, this is just unheard of. So anyways, we've both yeah. covered our asses now, but let's let's go ahead and jump into it. I feel like that's a good claim to make or we'll we'll fact check it, but I like it. Yeah, we need to fact check, definitely. <laughs> um so so the state of California gives us a bank license and I'll tell you why we picked them in a minute. Um because uh and then and then FDIC, Federal Department of Insurance Corporation, who apply who gives us um if they grant us a license would give us the deposit insurance to protect every person that has deposits in our bank up to $250,000. So, so you've got a bank charter from California, you've got an FDIC insurance, and then we do have a holding company in the, in the U S. Um, so then the federal reserve steps into that picture as well. But it's, but at this point, it's predominantly the state of California and, and the FDIC. And for us, you know, California was a pretty easy decision. Yes, California has the highest standards, one of the highest standards of any state um, out there when it comes to consumer laws. Um, and they, they kind of between them probably and and maybe New York and a few other states, they lead the lead the way um, in that. But that 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 doesn't bother us. We think that just validates us even more. Um, and California, why why California? Many, many of our customers reside here or are going to reside in California. Second of all, the talents here 
the talent level of, of the Silicon Valley and what we're looking for for the staff and the team very much reside in, in California. And the regulators are, are um, more comfortable with fintechs here um, just because it's, it's in their backyard. So kind of a combination of all those things, California really stood out at us as a place to go. Um, and then the FDIC is a, you know, I don't think you can have a bank and you can have a bank without FDIC insurance on your deposits, but, but what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have <laughs> to have that, um, but so, so that's our real direction is with those two. And that's who we filed with. Um, and then we'll, as we'll say, we'll announce it later, but that, that's what we've done to start that journey to offer a lot more products than we do today. How long do you foresee that taking? And I'm obviously not going to hold your feet to the fire because all sorts of things can happen between A and B. Uh, but what's, what's the guess? Like, when do you think that would happen? I'll give you I'll give you the bookends and then we can talk about reality. Okay. All right. <laughs> so bookends, bookends are this. Vara was one of the first not in California, but just let's talk about charters from it. So yep. Yep. Vara, Vara was one of the first. Um, it took them three years to, to um, from beginning to, to get a license for the FDIC and the and the OCC. And then the other bookend is that in the um, community bank spaces we talked about earlier. If you're not a fintech bank, you're just what I'm going to call a traditional legacy bank and you want to open up a bank and start as a de novo, it usually takes a year and a half, somewhere in that range. So there you've got your benchmark, a year, year and a half. If you're a fairly non-complex community bank, to three years at Varo Varo took. Um, If I looked at all of that and looked at where we fit in, you know, what's our complexity? How close are we to a community bank type look versus uh, a a fintech? I mean, we're in that year and a half, two year range probably. Um, But it's a a journey. um, That's for sure. And I always tell people getting a license, you know, it's a privilege, not a right. So, you you got to go through, and once you file your draft application, you start a long and arduous process of chat. What I call challenge questions, challenging: is your assumptions right? Is your projections correct? Is your business plan make sense? And you have to validate and prove all of that to the regulators to earn that. What I called, remember that validation I talked about earlier. Absolutely is a privilege. I it cracks me up when people complain. I guess I was even kind of kvetching earlier, but when people complain about, well, it's so hard to start a bank. It's like, well, should it be easy? You know? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I go to a you know when we can go to a cocktail party. Um, I don't think anything will have changed when you say you know if you're looking for a new bank or yeah, but, and you talk to your friend say well wait, who's your bank? Well, I can promise you that person can open up their wallet and they probably have three or four different bank credit cards and DVA. They have multiple relationships, right? Ones for points, ones for rewards, one. But but they will always immediately say who is their primary bank? That's the words out of their mouth, right? And th- because that even forget everything else, I'd bank with X company, right? Because that's because that's where they're saving. That's where they're sending their savings is. That's where they have direct deposit, you know, kind of the holy grail of banking. That's where their, their paychecks deposited every two weeks. And you would expect that one, Revolut wants to be that, but two, you'd expect that there's no easy task to get there. There's no hurdle to get there. You don't want somebody to take a shortcut to that bank that you're depending on making your bill payments every month with, because the only person that's going to get bad credit is you um, when, the, when the bank can't can deliver for whatever reason. So um, I think the hurdle should be pretty high. 
Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think I think, uh, you know, we've we've seen some interesting outcomes from the idea of democratizing things. Right. Which I'm kind of all for at the end of the day. Um, but there's you know, there's moments where we uh, we offer leverage to 13 year olds or something on their investments <laughs> that maybe things like that should not be democratized. But yeah, I digress. <laughs> let's yeah, let's no, keep no. talking. <laughs> that's, that's very, yeah, it's the other side of it, too. You know, when you ask somebody about um you know, what do you think of your bank or your bankers? Most of the time they'll say, you know, I don't really care that much for them. You know, eh, yeah, they're old, they're stuck. I don't like them. But they, you bank there because you don't keep it in your mattress because it's safe. It's back to that. It, it's safe there, right? But they're not going to be, you know, the top of your top 10 list of, of where you want to be or who you want to, you know, be with. So, so anyway, it, it's all about that trust and strength and validation. Yeah. So I'm curious about, this is kind of an ethereal question, but I'm especially curious about what the physical manifestation of this is going to be like. So let's say, you know, the COVID's over hypothetically, just for the the sake of this question, make life easier. Um, You're going to have HQ, sorry, HQ in California. You're going to have the bank charter in California. I always am curious about how there's a, is, is there a separation of church and state? And if so, how? So do you separate a Revolut bank employee or, or will there be a Revolut bank CEO or will that be Ron kind of as Revolut CEO US and the bank kind of rolls up under that? Like, do you separate the entity of quote unquote the fintech and quote unquote the bank? Or is the beauty of all this that it all functions together and it is all efficient? It all runs kind of in one place. And I imagine you learn something in the UK to apply here and probably going to run it at least as similarly as you can. Yeah, there's a from a complete um, kind of a, I don't want, let's say a legal structure. Let's let's look at it that front. From a le- from a legal structure, most companies, including ours, will have separate subsidiaries. You'll have the bank sitting in one subsidiary. You'll have a, a Revolut Technology sitting in another subsidiary. You'll have um, you know any other businesses and separate subsidiaries. So within the bank subsidiary, you'll, you'll be running all your bank products through that, all of your bank services, and that and that'll be probably the predominance of it. Now, now that the legal structure is out of the way, then you look how do they function? The functionality of it is is the bank will use resources from Rev Technology, whether it's the subsidiary company or its sister company in the U.S., or it's from the U.K., depending where it is, or it's a, a call center in, a, in another country, we will use those services and pay for those services with, to make sure that the experience uh, inside the bank is the Revolut experience, but the bank is the wrapper that protects the customer and ensures that things are done in the appropriate way. But we will be sharing and paying for technology as if think of it, Zach, as if there's another third party unrelated Revolut company that's providing us technology. But it's our it's within our family. That That's how it really flows. That makes sense. I mean, I, I think that's another thing that if you haven't worked at a community bank or spent a lot of much time in banking at all, you are maybe unfamiliar with the idea that a holding company actually owns most of the banks that we're interacting with. Right. And then everybody kind of functions under this holding company and maybe you borrow resources from here and there, but they're not generally intermixed other than the holding company. Right. So it's a I think that's a pretty standard way of handling things both legally and like org structure wise it makes a lot of sense yeah and you got it and you look at it from this too is that you know banks 
banks part of their due diligence, not the regulator, but the bank, the regulator will have oversight. But the bank, no matter what vendor we use, whether it's an unrelated third party or it's a revolute within the family, our our job is to do our due diligence there, ensure that they can stand up, ensure, ensure they're doing things correctly and meet all the rules and regs that are out there. So there's nothing... Just because it's in another subsidiary, banks have a responsibility to ensure that customer safety is there, information's protected, you know, all of those things that you, you can't advocate your responsibilities the way I always try and tell people. I think that piece right there kind of maybe explains why you went the de novo route versus acquiring an additional, an existing bank that already has liabilities, already has assets. Like, is, is that kind of why you want the direction of an entirely fresh balance sheet versus pulling something out of bankruptcy court? Or I don't, you know, a lot of these banks get kind of pulled from their last leg up into something because the charter has so much value. Yeah, um, very good point. And some some fintechs are moving in that direction. There's a couple that have bought, you know, really small, small banks. Um but the difference for us is, one, yes, there's a lot of issues usually with any bank um, that we don't really want to carry forward. But you can mitigate some of that for the most part. But for us is because our technology is so central to what we do and all the products we offer. You know, most fintechs offer one or two or three things really well. You know, they, they offer a, a prepaid DDA card. Maybe it's no fee you know, no fee checking, um, early pay, salary, something like they do it really well. For us, we take it all away from that DDA to savings, to crypto, to the junior program for kids, um, all the way across the spectrum. There's no bank out there, small bank anyway, that could even give us what we need there or provide much value to us whatsoever. We'd have to revamp the whole entire what the offering is. Their core system, whatever they're using, to wouldn't even compare to what we have today. So that would be just jettison, if you will. And regulators, um, they, they, they take their time and they're very um, precise. And one of the things they would do is if you buy a small bank like that, you know, that's not the way to, to get around the, the getting a charter because they're going to look at your business plan and go, well, wait a minute, you're doing something different than the, the Joe's bank in Missouri. OK, so we're going to want to see a business plan. It's going to be a longer journey than just you or I buying a bank and letting it run like it normally is. So we'd rather we'd rather build it from back to that build from scratch. That's that's who we are. Yeah, I mean, the ability to control your own destiny, at least as far as that goes, right? I, I, the number of fintech companies that have a great idea and then they go to their banking partner and their banking partner says, that's illegal or, you know, like that's <laughs> not entirely legal. We would need to have that conversation with our regulators, even if it is perceived to be, you know, all of these things. It makes it makes a lot of sense. And it has allowed for this second piece of news that we're breaking today, which is that you, well, I guess it's not just allowed for it. But over time, it will allow for even more creativity of this. But you just announced today that you're opening business accounts in the U.S. That is, as a business owner and the son of a business owner, I'm very excited about this. You must be the... I from again, this is another like bold claim that I'm making that I haven't totally fact checked, but I did some research. I think you're the only consumer facing quote unquote neobank that has gone the direction of small business or business banking at all that I can find, especially in the U.S. Yeah, there's I, yeah, I can't answer that question there. I, there's some um, 
fintechs that do business banking. And do oh, definitely. Stuff. But I don't think I don't I have had a really hard time, aka have not come up with anyone else that covers consumer and business holistically in the US that is actually kind of a fintech, right? Like not taking Wells Fargo or, you know, B of A into account, that kind of thing. I mean, it seems like either way, that part aside, this is very exciting. Tell tell us about kind of how the strategy came about. I think you've been doing business accounts in the UK for a while, right? So maybe this was just another kind of piece of the evolution, as you were saying before. Yeah, a couple, two things there. The first one is right on the Revolut's been doing business accounts um, in the UK and the EU, maybe two years, year and a half, two years. Um, We have about uh, a half a million customer business customers today, as compared to, you know, that 15 million or so retail. So that gives your viewers, uh, listeners, a a look at this. You know, we're we're predominantly retail, but we're definitely growing big in business. And why why did we do this? Um, And why why do we do it in the US? It is a natural adjunct that when you look at small business and let's break that into a couple categories small business meaning you and i have a day job and oh by the way we've got a small business that we do um kind of a side hustle um and you have to it's very difficult to to separate a separate business account have your checking account have all of that piece a lot of people just run it through their own personal account which is not the way which is not the way to do it so for us it's looking at all our customers and going a lot of you have small business we know you do um you can basically use the same app, press the business the business icon, your account, everything's there. All you have to do is add in a few more details. We know who you are. You've already KYC'd, you know, know your customer. You've already went through all that process. So it's a really seamless way to move it. And then you can move money back and forth between your business, your personal account, use the FX features, the multi-currency, all of those features. So it's tremendous for that. But then the real sweet spot, Zach, is so that's that's just helping our existing customers. In essence, that's really what that's about. What the next part is that there's a there's a huge group of small business in America that have that don't have a day job. That that is their job. That they have you know maybe three employees to I don't know hundred. Pick your number, but they're in that group that they really. This is their livelihood. They need a full-fledged business account and banking and setup and services. And they, when don't get to the level of service they need, when they're talking to uh, you know one of the more traditional banks because they're dealing with customers, you know, five hundred a million employees. You know, those get great service. Those are high-paying accounts, make banks a lot of money. I can speak to that. So that's where we really fly into the the zone of oh, you guys can give us virtually everything we need. Um, at a price point and pretty much frictionless compared to anybody else. So that, that's really, you know, they want to send money, they want to receive money, ACH payments, outbound SWIFT, you know, and they can top up that account. They can top up from their personal checking account. They can top, top up from a debit card. Um, there's just multiple ways that they can do that. Now, a lot of these small businesses, they either buy or sell products cross-border. And there's where we play a huge play. You want to, you know, because small businesses, one of their challenges is nobody knows them when they want to go buy some inventory, right? And so you say, well, you know what? I can pay you instantly. Or here, I can I can take care of that problem immediately for almost free. And so they look at it and go, oh, okay, that's good. So it, it gives them a lot more stature in the world too with that way. So I'll pause there for a minute. No, I, I love it. I only recently discovered how big of a pain point cross-border business-to-business payments are because to your point, 
I've always thought that the folks sending money, you know, from the U.S. to the U.K. to Singapore or whatever, it is those $500 million businesses. You know, it is those billion dollar businesses. And I run on top of for fintech sake in the day job. I also run a virtual conference with a couple friends and it's specifically focused on fintech. It's called VSUM. And the idea, one of the most recent ideas has been like, let's kind of focus on the small businesses piece, focus on this cross-border remittances piece and how they kind of, the two come together. And some of the stats about those dollar amounts, both in terms of volume and in terms of who's actually sending them is mind blowing to me. And I think that, you know, for the average person in the UK or in Europe or, you know, broadly in the EU, is they they know this right like their whole life is international but as americans i think we forget that a lot so it it really excites me that it's solving problems for everybody from you know me sitting here with for fintech sake llc you know zap studios and all the way up to you know the my mom who owns a yoga studio up from there to you know these these like kind of larger quote unquote small businesses it gets me going i'm curious though about having you know dive through the website looking in a kind of a voyeuristic way of what exists over in the uk and exists in europe in terms of features will you have kind of immediate feature parity in the US? Like, will the spend management be available? Kind of, how are you thinking about lending? I'm just curious about what what will be available when there. Okay, so yeah, we've got, we, we don't have 100%, we will not have 100% parity with the with the UK or let's say Revolut um, outside the US. Um, what, what things that we will have the basic product available, this is a lot of what Revolut does too, is that, you know, we, we provide the basic product step one, then we basically take all the noise out of that, you know, because, because we believe it's going to work perfect. Mm. Probably won't. There'll be a few hiccups. Um, and at that point, we'll work those through, we'll make sure they're in place, and then we start bolting on. So, so right now, you know, you, you've got the typical, you can do corporate, you can do your corporate cards, you got your account, you got your FX, you can, you can pay bills, you can turn them on and off, you got expense management, you know, all of those types of things. What we're missing, or what we want to continue to add to it is, um, you know, payroll, we don't have payroll right now. Um, for example. So that will come um, from that piece. We don't have credit at this point. We are in the process of launching credit on the retail side in the U.S., probably Q3, somewhere in that range, Q3, Q4. Um, But we don't have um, business credit at, at this point in time with it. So, so payroll to me is one of the, one of the big deals that, that we're going to need to do and credit, um, you know, unsecured business lines in that piece is something that will have to come as well. Um, that we don't have that um, day one. Yeah. Well, I mean, makes sense. That's if you, I don't know if you roll all of that out day one, it would be a lot for both you to digest and for your customers to digest probably. So uh, that makes sense. That's a lot. I'm curious how you distinguish between, or just how you strategize around the idea of kind of, like you said, business lending, quote unquote, versus maybe kind of credit and the idea of a credit card or something like that. And, you know, the the card issuance piece of it versus like a term loan kind of thing. Are you eventually planning to do both on the business side? Are you kind of thinking one before the other? And I guess the big elephant in the room with all this is, you know, leading to the next question that we all are thinking about is PPP and PPP round two. And I I know just digging through the website, you all already are kind of connecting folks to Cross River and like doing doing some of that pre-product already, it seems like, just to be helpful. Um, so I'm curious about kind of what the future, I guess, of lending on the, the business platform holds. 
Yeah, you're right. Going in reverse order, we do do we do PPP today, but we do it through a, a, a partner bank, Cross River. So for for our clients today that need it, it's there and it's available for them. Um, and then rolling forward, we're looking at two things: the unsecured lines and credit cards for for business. Because um, small business, it, it's a lot about cash flow, right? I mean, it's 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 really centered around that piece of it. So the unsecured lines of credit are pretty critical in that piece. So we're, we're trying to take increase or accelerate cash flow in two ways. One is instant payment, what I call acquiring. Acquiring means that you buy something from me and you can literally click on a QR code, put in your, put in the, my billing information and you can pay me instantly. So as a business person, I've got cash flow coming in quicker. On the other side, I've got a you know a line of credit that I can use to buy my inventory, and hopefully between speeding up my you know front end and kind of bridging my back end of inventory card, those two will alleviate you know that cash flow shortage that I may have on in individual particular times of the month, because that's what we're really focusing on business. We can we can put out the best product there. Um, that's just so critical um, to the small businessman or woman. And that that is the biggest rallying cry for that awkward me, honestly, right? That that person that is a person but is also a business and kind of has has needs on both sides for tax reasons, but for all intents and purposes is just one person, right? Mm-hmm. And the the cash flow thereof. I mean, it's like earned wage access, but in a much more nuanced kind of way, right? It's not I shouldn't say just getting your daily pay from Walmart because that's damn important, but it's, it's bigger than that, right? It's this flywheel of economics that turns and actually benefits the owner and the human that owns the thing, the corporate entity. Yeah. That, that entity that's out there, it's this, it's the same challenge. Almost everybody has when you're talking about an initial and what I call initial period, initial period could be anything. And it's not, I'm that's not, this is not related to business, but it, it, is a great analogy. If you want to buy a house, the biggest challenge first is the down, right? You could have a great job. You're paying well. Um, you could easily make the strokes on the payment, but the down, it's cash. If I'm starting a small business, what's the issue? It's cash. So that's really what we're very keenly focused on at Revolut is how do we, how do we make that spin faster for everyone? If you, if, you know, it's kind of like getting paid. It's kind of like you get, you know, I don't know how you get paid, but if you get, I get paid every two weeks. Okay. So I get paid every two weeks. All right. So basically my employer is holding my money for two weeks um, in that process. Okay. And why can't we say, wait a minute, why don't we set up something with the employer that says that if Zach or Ron wants to get paid two, you know, two times a week, you know, rather than every two weeks, no reason not to. You're, you're salaried. You're going to get paid. It's a no-risk deal. So that's things that Revolut is looking at because those are getting quicker spin, you know, or, or basically velocity on money. And that has tremendous value for the, for the, especially the underbanked. Um, those, those folks, it's a real need. It's not, it's not, oh, gee, I want the, the latest iPhone. So I need to get my thousand dollars earlier. You know, gee, maybe I need, maybe I need some milk and potatoes this, <laughs> this week. I really need to eat, um, conversation. So that's very critical of what Revolut offers too. Cause you can do even the, the business account we're talking about at the basic level is free. All right. If you become a much bigger organization, heavier user of products, we have kind of a subscription model. You're going to pay a monthly fee to use the more services. But initially, 
you can get in for free or near free on on most all of the the business product we offer and consumer product that we offer today. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful flywheel on the business side, but the public service is not to be discounted, I don't think, right? The One of the biggest things that I constantly run into as a fintech nerd is folks, friends, I should say, not just folks, it's such a Midwestern term, friends ask me, what should I download for X, right? And to your point, a lot of these apps in the US are great for Y, great for Z, you know, like I, I've have certain things that I would recommend, you know, about for kids that need a debit card. Right. And then I have certain things I would recommend if you're above 18 and want to buy a stock. And then I have certain things I'll recommend if you want to buy cryptocurrency, but the barrier to entry there, I don't think is the KYC flow, right? I don't think it's the, the actual inner workings of the app, it's knowledge, right? It's knowing to go look. And the average American, I don't think is pulling together 17 of the best apps and putting, you know, two of them on their kid's phone, one on their, you know, significant other's phone. Like it just, it's, it's a ease thing, right? And it's a, it's getting all of that friction to just kind of subside. And the idea that I could sign up for Revolut and be able to sign, I don't have a child, but if I did sign my kid up and actually without spending any money, have my kid learn stuff, right. And understand money and save for a goal. I mean, it's all stuff that we've like, you know, for years been trying to get our kids to save in these little envelopes and, you know, do all these things, but like actually having a digital mechanism that meets people where they live on all of these checkboxes, like it's, it's really, it feels to me like you all are the really all the way on the leading edge of this rebundling, right? We saw this great unbundling that happened over the last 10 years and you all are truly leading the charge on like, yeah, the unbundling was great, but we have to put it back together and meet people where they live or else this whole FinTech thing is for not, at least in my opinion, I, I think it's, would think you guys agree based on the direction you're heading, but I don't know. It gets, it gets me excited and I know we're coming up on time here. So I wanted to at least get that out of my head and uh, into the listeners ears. But before we jump to the last questions, I probably had about 35 other things I wanted to ask you that I didn't get to. So I just want to give you a second. Anything else that you want to kind of say about Revolut? Any other kind of like last public service announcement you want to give before before I jump into the the final questions here? No, I, I think probably the only thing we haven't, you know, really you talked about the junior program, but I, I think what Revolut, I always tell people, you know, just download the app. All right. There's so many things there, but download the app and look at it from, Write down what's important to you, meaning what's, you know, I need to have a DDA account. I need to have a direct deposit. Oh, by the way, I've heard this crypto thing and it just really excites me. And I, I, I don't know how to get into it. You know, okay, write those things down that's important to you. Look at the Revolut app and most things that you have written down on that eight by, you know, that three and a half by five card is in the Revolut app. It's in a Revolut app. If you want that, it's there. Or if, you know, you, you have some unique ones. We don't have them. We're good listeners um, to that piece of it. But that's what I do. Write down all the things. Don't just write down today I need a DDA account or today I need a savings account. God, I love to buy crypto. It's going to go to $100,000. That's what my neighbor said at the bar. You know, it's it's write down to five, six, seven, ten things you want and look at Revolut and you'll probably see it there. You'll probably have it there. 
That's a cool statement to be able to make. Write down the five, six, seven, ten things, and it's all in one place. So that's cool. Um, so the last couple questions are pretty standard. The first one is just how can the For Fintech Sake listener base help you if you're hiring, if you're wanting folks to go do maybe what you just said and download the app and give it a try. Uh, if there's any you know call to action on the business side, whatever whatever our listener base of fintech nerds and students and everything else can do to help you. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, download app of course but i I think really um you know become a revoluter you know try it like i said it's it's basically cost free up front so you you what you're really spending is some time on on the process but your audience they're much more tech savvy than you know the average so let them test it let them push it go try and break it if you want um and and tell us you know what works what does work most everything we ideas we get yeah, yeah, I'd like to think we're the great think tank, but in reality, most of the ideas we get are their, their customer needs. Their customers telling us this works, this doesn't work, or they're doing something in the app, and we go, "Why are you doing this?" Well, because I need to do it. We go, "Oh, well, we can fix that." You know, you don't have to do it that way. We we can start. So that's I think from a technology standpoint, it'd be great to have some of your your listeners um, try it out, test it. You know. They can find they can find me. I can give them my email address, and they can talk to me directly with what they see. And um, it, it won't uh, it won't go it won't go unlistened to, if you will, or unnoticed. Yeah, well, the you know the best listen tank be- beats the best feed think tank any day. I think so. That, that makes a lot of sense. And you kind of beat me to the last question, which is based on the question before the last question. Where can folks find more info about you? I'll link to the app and all that kind of stuff in the show notes. But uh, where can folks find Ron? Where can folks find Revolut? Where should where should we point them? For me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. You can go there. Um, but as far as the company goes, the apps on you know uh, all the, the two major stores, if you will, you know the Android and the and the Apple side, so you can get it there. We're just building out, um, and it's fairly basic at this point. You know, an internet presence, so you can go from the internet side, look to Revolut US, and find us there. But remember, we're a mobile app, so it's it's much better to find us from just downloading the app from the from the store and using it from that point of view. Because to to down, to get a card at, at Revolut or not even get a card, just to use virtual cards if you want, it's basically download it, take a picture of your driver's license or passport, turn around and smile and take a selfie, um, and, and let us marry the two up, and and that's virtually how you might take a day, maybe a half a day to a day to get it to get approved. After that. You're, um, you can use it. You're good to go. And I always tell people the one thing is a challenge is that people go through all that. They take a picture. They do all that. And they pause because then we ask for things. You know, we ask, what's your address? What's your SSN? You know, that kind of things. Um, so get through that piece of us. Get through that piece. Just like you do with any other fintech. If you're not sure, you know, just top up your account with 30 bucks, 40 bucks, you know, try it. That it's, that's safe. You know, we can all, we can, not that we want to lose our beer money for the weekend, but you know, in essence, 30, 40 bucks, just start playing with the app and, and use it. That's, that's my, my thought on this. I love it. Well, I'm excited to try the business account. I'm excited to kind of watch the the future of Revolut in the U.S. and and see how things unfold with the bank charter and with just kind of the you all coming out of you know quasi stealth and starting to starting to really make some splashes in the U.S. So thanks for thanks for having the conversation. We're gonna have to do another one sometime in a, a year or two and check in on how everything's going, Ron. This has been a blast. 
would love to appreciate your interest, your support. Um, and yeah, you know, we should mark the calendar maybe in six months from now. We're going to have some other pretty exciting things that are coming along. Um, and we should at that point um, have been on a pretty big marketing campaign, market awareness um, piece of it. Um, so there'll probably be a lot more to, to talk about there. And, you know, you can critique our commercials. Tell us how good or, <laughs> good or bad we're doing. Yeah, I'm hoping that I can get back on a plane and get back to a subway somewhere to see one of the billboards soon. So <laughs> I have hope that the world will go back to normal and I'll be able to see the ads everywhere. All right. Well, very good. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of For Fintech's Sake with Revolut US CEO Ron Oliveira. I've included the full press release and links to what we discussed in the show notes. Take a look there. Otherwise, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the podcast host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and in honor of breaking some news today, I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs>